About two o'clock in the morning of Thursday, April 27, 1865, an explosion woke the members of a Chicago minstrel troupe who were in Memphis for a two-week engagement. They had arrived the evening before aboard the Sultana. As they looked out of their hotel room window, they saw no evidence of fire or other type of disaster, so they returned to their beds, hoping to make up for the lack of sleep from spending three days on a riverboat. Although it was one of the finest to ply the inland waterways of North America, the comfort of a large hotel bed oversharing a six-foot stateroom, no matter how sumptuously appointed it might be, was apparent, especially on a boat so crowded with recently freed soldiers returning to the friendly arms of their families from their incarceration in Confederate prisoner of war camps. Later that morning, the members of the troop learned that the noise was the sound of the Sultana's four boilers exploding turning the riverboat they had so recently called home into a ball of flames and placing her in the history books as, even today, over a century and a half later, the worst maritime disaster in United States history. Hi, I'm Charles Bukloski, and this is Shotguns and Sugar, where we take a look at the history you don't always learn about in school. In this episode, we're going to talk about the Sultana's explosion and the attendant loss of some 2,000 lives. Although I tell the story of the Sultana disaster in most of my United States history classes, the genesis of this podcast is the result of a research assignment I completed while working on my doctorate in heritage studies at Arkansas State University. For those of you who are interested, I've included a list of published works used to prepare this podcast on the Shotguns and Sugar website, shotgunsandsugar.com. I'm indebted to Dr. Lewis Interest for much of the unpublished sources used in this podcast. His passion for the study of steamboating stems from a childhood friendship with one of the last of the riverboat captains. A great deal of the information I used is also available through the Sultana Museum in Marion, Arkansas. Also, a number of documentaries have been developed about the Sultana. One of the best that I'm aware of is a 2010 film that the History Channel published titled Tragedy on the Mississippi. While the Sultana disaster was a terrible tragedy, the response of the citizens of Memphis and other nearby communities in rescuing and housing the survivors leaves a legacy of compassion that can be an example to all. As I discussed in my podcast on the real end of the Civil War, the position of the disaster within the context of the Confederacy's collapse is a significant element of this story. However, it is only one of several elements that needs to be included in telling the Sultana's story. These elements can be placed into three broad categories, the boat and the economy, the passengers and crew, and the place where the disaster occurred. Let's begin with the boat and the economy. The boat itself shared many similarities to other large river boats of the day, like its four decks and its wooden superstructure built over a steel hull. Even the four boilers that drove the twin paddle wheels were of a well-tested design. It only had two masters, William Luddock for its first two years, and Cass Mason for the next year or so. Economically, 1864 had not been kind to the Mississippi River transportation industry. In fact, it was so bad that many ship's captains simply parked their boats and waited for the economy to improve. Due to the way his purchase of the boat was structured, this was not an option for Mason and the Sultana, so he started selling portions of his own shares in the partnership to keep the boat afloat. By the time of the disaster, the first mate actually owned more of the boat than did Mason. To help strengthen his precarious financial situation, in February of 1865, Mason entered into an agreement with 22 other steamboat operators and formed the Merchants and People Steamboat Line. This line, in turn, entered into a contract to haul freight and troops for the Union forces. 
With the Army paying $5 per enlisted man and $10 per officer, the contract with Washington promised to be a lucrative one, especially for the Sultana. With its wider cargo space on the boiler deck, it could carry significantly more passengers in steerage than other boats of similar size. So much for the financial situation. Now let's talk about the crew, the passengers, and the place as we tell the story of the disaster itself. When it left New Orleans on its final trip north on Sunday, April 21, 1865, the Sultana carried about 40 passengers and about 80 crew members, well below the design capacity of 376. Two of the passengers who boarded in New Orleans were newlyweds Seth W. Hardin Jr. and his blushing bride. In addition to the passengers, Mason had 120 tons of sugar, 97 boxes of wine, and 60 hogs to be delivered to the Union Quartermaster's office in Memphis. Between New Orleans and Vicksburg, the boat's chief engineer noticed a bulge on the outside of one of the boilers, and he shut it down to avoid the risk of the boiler exploding. The passenger list expanded substantially in Vicksburg, where several more civilian passengers boarded, including the Chicago Opera Troupe mentioned earlier. They were a well-known traveling minstrel company that was touring the towns along the Mississippi. They paid for passage north to Memphis, where they were scheduled to perform in the Anthem Hall. Also boarding in Vicksburg was Lieutenant Harvey Annis with his wife Anna and their child. Lieutenant Annis was retiring from the military, and he and his family were moving north to begin their lives as civilians. But the largest group to board in Vicksburg was a contingent of soldiers recently released from Confederate POW camps. Shortly after he arrived in Vicksburg, Mason met with the agent of the Merchants and People's Line and learned that two boatloads of troops from Camp Fisk, where the troops were being housed before being shipped north to muster out of the Army, had already been sent home. The two immediately set out for the quartermaster's office to make arrangements for the Sultana to fill its decks with as many troops as possible. Though successfully transporting these troops to Cairo, Mason hoped to put his financial troubles behind him. Mason was more successful than he ever could have imagined. The quartermaster, believing there were no more than 1,400 troops remaining in the camp, directed that all of the remaining ex-POW should be sent north on the Sultana. Unfortunately, the quartermaster was misinformed about the number of troops in the camp. In fact, somewhere between 2,000 and 2,300 troops were loaded onto the boat, designed to hold no more than 375 people. One might wonder why a quartermaster would permit so many more soldiers than the boat's designed capacity to be boarded onto one boat. The answer is simple. Mason agreed to return to the quartermaster personally a portion of the per-head fee the government was paying for the soldiers' passage. The last group of passengers to board was a dozen or so members of the Sisters of Charity, a lay volunteer organization dedicated to providing assistance to soldiers in poor health. While Mason was busy loading the passengers, the chief engineer tracked down a boiler maker, yes, that was a real job back then, and had him check out the bulging boiler. With all the soldiers on board, the crew felt the need to move rather quickly, so there was only time for a quick patch job, not a proper repair. But it was good enough to bring the boiler back online. Although the crowded conditions made it difficult to move around, the troops nevertheless responded to the time-honored habit of craning to watch passing ships. As the troops shifted position from one side of the boat to the other, the Sultana tipped, sometimes precariously, causing Mason and his crew to ask the commanders to keep their troops as still as possible. Tilting the ship raised two important safety concerns. 
First, if the boat was to tilt too far, it could cause the water in the boilers to slosh from side to side, increasing the risk of explosion. Also, with the deck so overcrowded, the crew was worried about the deck collapsing if too much weight was concentrated in any one area. The crew was so concerned with this possibility that they'd strengthen the deck supports before they left the docks in Vicksburg. In spite of these relatively minor difficulties, the Sultana made good time between Vicksburg and Memphis. Memphis was the most confederate of towns. Before Tennessee voted to join the Confederacy, city leaders had made plans for the city to join itself to Mississippi should the volunteer state choose to not secede. The city fell to the Union after a brief battle between Confederate and Union gunboats on June 6, 1862. Because it didn't resist, the city avoided a heavy-handed military occupation. Even Grant and Sherman's directives that relations of Confederate Army soldiers leave town was hardly ever enforced. With the Union in control, it didn't take long for the northern speculators to set up shop in town. They purchased cotton and other raw materials brought into Memphis from the city's hinterland to feed the northern mills. Plantation owners demanded payment in gold or silver coin, and that they then donated to the Confederacy, who used it to purchase weapons and clothing. Thus, thanks to northern speculators, northern businessmen operating in Memphis became an important source of the Confederacy's income. Given its location close to the geographic center of the Confederacy, its position on the Mississippi, and Union control, it is natural that Memphis would be rife with clandestine activities. In fact, the whole region around Memphis was full of former Confederate soldiers who continued, unofficially, to fight for the Southern cause by raiding Union stores and shipping. One of the tasks of the Union gunboats stationed in Memphis was to go up and down the river destroying boats Southern sympathizers used against the Union. At the same time, the city was a compassionate community. The city supported 13 hospitals, two soldiers' homes, a branch office of the U.S. Sanitary Commission, its quick responses to disasters along the river had earned it the moniker the Good Samaritan City. Lizzie Aiken, also known as Aunt Lizzie, worked in the Union military hospitals in Memphis. Her account of the Sultana's stop illustrates the positive attitude this Confederate town held for the principles of Lincoln's version of Reconstruction as he outlined it in his second inaugural address. She recalled that... In April... Word was received in Memphis that the steamer Sultana was on her way up the river with 1,900 discharged Union prisoners and 400 other passengers on board. When it was understood that she would stop for a few hours at Memphis, the loyal citizens of the place prepared a sumptuous supper for the poor soldiers who had been half-starved during the last 15 months. The artillery was drawn up in line on the riverbank and saluted the boat as she swung to shore. The crowd cheered, and the afternoon was spent in congratulations and feasting. The war was ended, and all the soldiers in Memphis were expecting soon to follow in the wake of the Sultana, up the river, home. Mason and the crew expected this stop to last just long enough to drop off the sugar and live hogs with the Union Quartermaster's Corps and several passengers, most notably the Chicago Minstrel Troop. The space created by the disembarking passengers was filled with new passengers, one of whom was Senator-elect William Snow. Under Lincoln's Reconstruction Plan, Arkansas, along with three other states, had been declared compliant and were allowed to rejoin the Union. Snow was the first senator from the reconstructed state. The last Union soldier to return to the boat was Louis Shermeyer. He recalled the Memphis stop when he wrote, 
The boat stopped at Memphis at 8 o'clock in the evening, and many of us went ashore, and an opportunity for drinking was not neglected. A friend of mine had money, and I filled up with beer and almost missed the boat, which resumed its course at midnight. In fact, I was the last to come to the gangplank, which was at once drawn in after me. In the vast crowd, it was difficult to find a place to lie down, but I found one on the topmost deck just in front of the pilot house before I fell into a deep sleep. While Shermeyer slept, the Sultana made its final stop, a short half-mile journey up and across the river to Hopefield Station in Arkansas. Located between present-day West Memphis and Marion, a number of barges loaded with coal and wood for the steamboats to use were moored there. The Sultana primarily burned coal, but following the practice of the day added wood to the coal. The belief was that the cinders from the wood would scatter themselves among the coal, causing the fire to burn hotter. The Sultana took on about 1,000 bushels of coal, along with a large amount of wood. The extra weight brought on by the coal and wood partly offset the loss of ballast occasioned by the delivery of the hogs and sugar to Memphis. Later, during the investigation of the disaster, some suggested that Confederate sympathizers in Hopewell had planted a torpedo, a bomb designed to look like a large chunk of coal, on the Sultana. The Sultana pulled away from the barges about 1 a.m. on April 26, 1865, and began to wind her way through the sandbars and submerged islands that were prevalent along the Memphis section of the Mississippi during the spring floods. Later that day, Confederate General Joseph E. Johnson surrendered his army to General William T. Sherman. Also, John Wilkes Booth, Lincoln's assassin, was killed while trying to escape capture. But to return to the Sultana, about an hour's steam north of Hopewell, the boilers exploded. Shermeyer recalled the event when he wrote, I was awakened by the noise of a terrific explosion of the boilers and found myself being hurled upward through the air. I must have gone up 20 or 25 feet. In falling, I struck the shattered pilot house. My face was cut and bleeding, and my hair was half singed off by a flame that burst over me. It was a rude awakening. I swung myself down a rope into the river. The night was moonless, but the flame spread a bright gleam over the swollen stream. Never can I forget that scene. The heads of the people in the water were so numerous that it seemed as if an apple thrown in any direction just would have surely hit one of them. Some cursed, some prayed, all cried out for help. Every few minutes a hand would be uplifted helplessly, and the next moment its owner would be swept out of my sight. The flames grew hotter and approached more nearly. My place of observation could be held but a little longer. To remain would be to burn to death, to jump would be to drown, for I was an indifferent swimmer. The increasing heat decided. I sprang into the water. I paddled on the best I could. At last, when my strength was almost exhausted, I was struck from behind and turning about grasped a floating piece of timber that had probably been a deck support. I threw my arms over it and in an hour, I had floated into the branches of a tree that overhung the swollen river. I clambered to a place of safety. Four others found places in the tree. Here we remained until daylight, when one of the many boats that had been sent up from Memphis for the relief of the survivors approached near enough to hear our cries. We were lifted on board. I fainted at once. In three days, I was able to purse my journey by another steamer to Cairo, and at Indianapolis, I received an ovation and was mustered out. While the cause of the explosion has been a matter of debate for more than a century, recent computer simulations confirmed that the patch job the plumber did in Vicksburg failed and shrapnel from that boiler pierced the adjoining ones, creating the explosion. The main force of the explosion moved at an angle up and to the rear of the boat, shattering the decks above it. Those in the path of the explosion, most of whom were asleep, were killed instantly. 
Those who survived the explosion were drenched with white-hot steam. Along with the men, the explosion also ejected the fire buckets from their storage area on board, ruining any attempt to fight the fires in the front of the boilers. The part of the explosion that moved downward scattered the hot coals throughout the ships where it ignited the wooden superstructure and flooring outside the main path of the explosion. As the fires began to consume the dry wood, the weakened deck supports collapsed, trapping those below in a new, much deadlier furnace. Over the next hour or so, panicking men jumped over the side into the cold, dark waters of the river, hoping for the safety of flotsam as an alternative to certain death. The panicky soldiers, many of whom, like Shermeyer, could not swim, began fighting with each other for something, anything to hold on to, in some cases drowning others to save themselves. During this scene of panic, one of the Sisters of Charity appeared on the edge of the burning bow. A newspaper reporter wrote this account after interviewing several of the survivors. Looking down at the struggling mass of humanity, fighting like demons in the mad endeavor to save their lives and actually destroying each other and themselves by their wild actions, she began to call to the men, talking to them, urging them to be men. Her soothing words combined with the sight of this angel of mercy standing so bravely against the backdrop of flames had an effect that finally succeeded in getting the men quieted down clinging to the ropes and chains that hung over the bow of the boat. The flames now began to lap around her with their fiery tongues, and the men pleaded with the woman to jump into the water and save herself. Shaking her head, she spoke loudly, I might lose my presence of mind and be the means of death of some of you. Then, as the men continued with their pleas, the woman folded her arms quietly over her bosom and burned, a voluntary martyr to the men she had so lately quieted. Corporal William A. Fast talked more about the men who, like Shermeyer, found safety in the tops of the flooded trees. One could hear the boys who were scattered up and down the river, perched upon rocks, trees, points of islands, or hanging to the brush in the water, indulging in their humor in a great variety of ways. Some were singing old familiar army songs and patriotic airs, some mocking the birds, some sitting upon the rocks, and consciousness of their ridiculous plight raised a laugh among their companions by mimicking frogs. At first blush, it may seem kind of weird that these men would spend their time joking around with funny songs and animal stories, but in his memoirs of his life in Nazi concentration camps during World War II, Victor Frankl notes that humor was another of the soul's weapons in the fight for self-preservation. It is well known that humor, more than anything else in the human makeup, can afford an aloofness and an ability to rise above any situation, even if only for a few seconds. End quote. With that in perspective, it's apparent that making noises like frogs was simply an attempt at self-preservation. Lieutenant Elliott's experience jumping from the boat to the river tells us much about the strain put on those who did not make it to the trees. This account was taken from an undated article found in the National Tribune of Washington, D.C. I recollect the sensation I felt on leaping from the steamer into the cold water of that turbulent stream as the flames from the burning vessel cast a weird flare over its surface. As I drifted from the light of the burning boat into the darkness, the scene changed from one of horror to a feeling of despair, and I had little hopes of being saved. After hours of uncertainty, sailors in the all from a gunboat at Memphis picked me up. I was with three others, 
one of whom fell into a whirlpool and was drowned. The other two I have no way of knowing whether they ever were saved or not. The sailor who picked me up at daylight, when unconscious, told me later I was the only person on the wreckage with me when he came to get me. Lieutenant Elliot was probably at the wharf in Memphis, which came to be the primary drop-off point for both the dead and the survivors. As word of the disaster spread throughout the town, the residents began to migrate towards the wharf. Some climbed into small boats and began rowing through the darkness and fog towards the cries of the survivors. Others remained on shore and built fires and began to care for those brought to the docks. One of the first group to arrive were members of the U.S. Sanitary Commission, who came with clothing and blankets. Individual surgeons and hospital administrators needed no encouragement to grab their instruments and head for the wharf. Even those not experienced in medical service or emergency response were moved to help. Two employees of a woodyard used a rowboat to move the living on moored ferry boats and the corpses of the dead on driftwood to be retrieved later. Aunt Lizzie's biographer described the conditions on the Memphis waterfront that morning. In company with half the inhabitants of the city, Aunt Lizzie rushed to the bank. There an appalling sight met their eyes. The whole river was alive with human beings, scalded and drowning. Hundreds were hanging to pieces of timber. The banks were strewn for miles with the dead, and from the whole struggling, suffering mass went up a heart-rending cry that froze the blood of those who heard it. Blankets were spread on the sand, and the victims were drawn out of the water as they floated past. Many of them were so badly scalded that the moment the air touched their bodies, the intolerable anguish drove them back into the water, and they were lost but hundreds were rolled up in the blankets and taken to the hospitals. The story of Ann Annis and her family is another emotionally moving story. After the explosion, Captain Annis lowered his wife and seven-year-old daughter into the water, then climbing down to be with them. When his daughter was exhausted, he held her until they were so weakened that they could not continue. Helpless to save them herself, his wife watched as both husband and daughter slipped below the surface and drowned. Shortly after, Albert King, an Andersonville survivor, found Annis and pulled her aboard the door he was riding, then helped her to the safety of the trees. Some of the men in the trees, like Shermeyer, were saved by boats sent from Union steamers based in Memphis. Others came from the nearby hamlet of Mound City, Arkansas, a small community with a well-deserved reputation for housing Confederate guerrillas. Its residents pulled out the few boats and canoes that remained after a Union raid earlier in the week and began bringing people ashore. One of the Mound City families, the Fogelmans, lashed together some log rails and began pulling the survivors who'd become tangled up in the treetops along the flooded banks of the river to safety. Annis was one of the people they rescued. They took her home, where Mrs. Fogelman cared for her until Union gunboats moved her and others that the Confederate raiders had rescued to Memphis. When Annis arrived in Memphis, she was admitted to Grace Hospital, suffering from a combination of injuries, exhaustion, and the horror of watching her husband and child drown. Recognizing her plight, the Memphis Daily Bulletin ran an advertisement appealing to the ladies of Memphis to come to her aid, and respond they did. By the time she was released to return to her parents' home some three weeks later, she had several hundred dollars and several trunks of clothing and other personal material to take with her. This appeal was not the only fundraiser to be held in Memphis for the Sultanas survivors. A benefit performance was put on by the Chicago Minstrel Troupe that had ridden with the troops from Vicksburg to Memphis. The New Theater, Second Presbyterian, and Cavalry Episcopal Churches all held fundraisers, 
as did the Union Ironclad Essex and General Shanks Union Cavalry Division. All totaled, several thousand dollars were raised for the survivors to help them on their way. In all, an estimated 786 passengers and crew were rescued, 521 of whom were taken to five hospitals in Memphis. Of those rescued, over 200 died from the injuries they sustained in the accident or from exposure. Apparently uninjured, Senator-elect Snow left Memphis the day after the explosion, arriving in Cairo on the evening of the 28th. From there, he continued by train to Washington, D.C., where the radicals in Congress refused to seat him, one of the first moves to assert congressional muscle in their political war with President Johnson over Reconstruction. Over the next week, the quartermaster's office in Memphis arranged transportation for somewhere between two and three hundred of the healthiest survivors. They traveled from Memphis to Cairo aboard steamboat, then by train through Illinois and Ohio to Camp Chase near Columbus, where they were mustered out. The remaining troops, along with the surviving civilians who were too weak or ill to travel, were cared for in Memphis until they either died or recovered and were able to return home. On June 7, 1865, five days after the last Confederate Army surrendered and 41 days after the Sultana exploded, John W. Leslie became the last survivor to leave Memphis. Three weeks later, the last victim of the Sultana disaster to die in Memphis succumbed to his wounds. The residents of Memphis and Mound City also did not forget the dead. Close to 200 bodies of the Sultana victims were interred in Memphis, most of them in Evergreen Cemetery. Another 120 or so were buried near the remains of the ship itself. Those that floated south, past Memphis, did not fare so well. Virtually all of them were left to the river and nature for burial. News of the disaster traveled quickly, but it was relegated to the back pages of the newspapers as the headlines and follow-up stories focused on Lincoln's burial and death and the death of his assassin and the other conspirators. Thus, the tragedy was lost to all but the survivors and the families of the dead. Of the estimated 2,200 passengers and crew on the Sultana, 1,900 died as a result of the exploding boilers. By comparison, the sinking of the Titanic, widely considered the worst maritime disaster in modern history, only resulted in slightly more than 1,500 deaths. However, the Sultana tragedy is significant not only due to its loss of life, but to its position in time, near the end of the Civil War, when all could see the pending defeat of the Confederate efforts for independence. When matched with the compassion of the area residents to save the lives of their enemies, the response to the Sultana disaster embodies Lincoln's expression of unity given just months before in his second inaugural address. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. His desire for both sides to find ways to set aside their differences and, through service and compassion, unify the country politically and socially is embodied in the response of the Memphis community to the Sultana disaster. I'd like to give a special shout-out to those who did the voices for Aunt Lizzie Aiken, Louis Shermeyer, Corporal William A. Fast, Lieutenant Elliott, and the newspaper reporter. These include Cheryl and Ryan Burton, creators of Mommy's Book Bag on Instagram, Arthur Streeter of Arthur and Melly's Vlog fame, and Mark McCloskey. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this issue of Shotguns and Sugar, where we talk about elements of the past that you don't often hear about in the traditional classroom. For more information on this and other subjects addressed on this channel, check out our website, shotgunsandsugar.com, 
and tune into future podcasts about the wonders of history.